their program. All right. Well, I am just back from a short vacation, as you are probably aware. Nadine and I had a few weeks off. Uh, when we left here on the last Sunday, I, a lot of people asked me what we were going to be doing, and, and legitimately, we had no plans. We were just going to stay around the house. And for most of those two weeks, that's actually what we did. But, uh, you know, we got home that Sunday afternoon and thought, we actually probably should go somewhere because the sun refuses to come out for a consistent period of time here. So this <laughs> is the chance. So we did. We booked a quick trip down south to the States and had a chance to sit around a pool for a few days. And we went to the Grand Canyon, which, which I had never done. Uh, if you haven't been to the Grand Canyon, I highly recommend putting that on your list of things to see and to visit. And we got back and it, well, not much had changed. It, it was raining when we left and it was raining when we got back. So I had to ask Josh, actually, who looked after the house while we were gone, like, Josh, like, like, we were gone for a while. Like, what happened? What changed? And he thought for a second. He's like, well, we, we have a fly now. So that was legitimately the only thing that's changed. We apparently now have a fly, which means he didn't take the garbage out. But, <laughs> so, but we're hoping for better things in August than we had in July. Hopefully this August, starting this weekend even, we can get back to some of these more summertime type activities that we all anticipate. The, the barbecue cooking, patio sitting, lawn cutting, dog walking, festival going, two floating, mosquito swatting, festivities that we all look forward to at this time of year. Amen? Yes, it's coming. Well, as we continue this sermon series called Storyteller, we're talking about parables that Jesus shared with, with the crowds and the followers that he had. And, and this idea of parables are these stories that he would use as a teaching style that would bring a heavenly principle down alongside an earthly reality that was familiar to his audience. And so we see common themes come up because he's trying to take heavenly principles and align them alongside familiar earthly realities. And when we look at the Gospel of Luke, there's one theme that comes up a number of times, actually. And it's this idea of Jesus at gatherings, of Jesus at perhaps very similar to some of the summer gatherings that we like to have where we share a meal together around a barbecue, around a patio, even perhaps around a campfire. And he would teach during these moments. Now, we also find that at a lot of these meals he would go to, these different gatherings, they would happen to take place on the Sabbath. And this would be the equivalent to you having people over to your house for Sunday evening dinner. It's a special day. It's a, a special event often. You tend to make more than craft dinner. It's, it, it's usually a roast in the oven or a bit of a bigger event on those particular days. Now, quite often, these invitations he would receive to these Sunday dinners, these Sabbath dinners that they would have, would come from prominent religious leaders. People who thought it was rather prestigious to have Jesus come to their house, to, to teach in my home so that people could see him in my place. He is my guest. I am actually quite often surprised how often Jesus accepted these invitations, however, because he knew that the, get, that the, it, it, the person doing the inviting, the other guests, he knew that they quite often didn't like him very much and that perhaps they had other motives taking place. This is, you know, we've all received these invitations in the past, perhaps in the mail, where it's, you think to yourself, really, has it been six months? I'm not going back to the dentist again. That's not an invitation I'm looking forward to. Or I'm not sure I want to go to my third cousin's wedding in Winnipeg this summer. So we say no to some invitations we get, but Jesus was, was a fan of saying yes to these, even though we think uh, quite often these would be difficult situations for him. Well, the parable we're going to look at today, 
takes place in one of these settings around a meal, where from the moment he walks in, he knows there's ulterior motives at play here. And if you want to follow along, you can find this in Luke chapter 14, and starting in verse 1. Uh, if you're using the online uh, app that we have for the sermon notes, you'll see it's all provided for you right there. If you haven't got a Bible with you, you can find one in the pew in front of you, and it is on page 847. And we see right from the very opening verse in Luke chapter 14 that this is not necessarily a casual, friendly dinner. Which probably wasn't surprising to Jesus, because a few chapters earlier, at the end of Luke 11, Luke tells us that even at that point, the Pharisees are already made up in their minds that they were going to begin to oppose him fiercely, that they're going to watch him, they're going to try and trip him up to, to catch him doing something or saying something that they could use against him. And so this kind of fits within that mind frame that they're already having. But as we'll see as we go through this parable, Jesus will be the one confronting them about the nature of how they sat around that table, about their lack of humility, their their lack of generosity that they had not shown to those who had been excluded from the table. You see, while other guests were focused upon themselves, who's going to receive recognition? Who's going to receive honor, the most honor around this table? These experts in the law of God had become blind to the heart of God. God's heart for those who are maybe not present around that particular table. And so as we begin reading this parable, Luke 14, chapter 1, it says this. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And so Jesus asked the Pharisees, he asked those experts of the law, those people who were gathered around the table with him, he he looks at them and he says, is it lawful to heal? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or, or is it not? Now this is the ideal setting to catch Jesus in some sort of violation that they can use to condemn him or to start to turn people against him. See, the setting that we have here is is they're gathered around what is typically a U-shaped table where the the host of the party would sit at the base and then others of his invitation would sit around the table. So everyone's, everyone's got a good line of vision. Everyone can see each other. Everyone can see what's going on around this U-shaped table. At the same time, on the perimeter of the room, Uh, Just outside the doors, just outside the windows, outside the building, there's also people who are the uninvited. But they're allowed to be physically in the area because it adds to the prestigious nature of the host. If if more people see this rabbi in my house, if, if more people see the festival I've served, it adds to my prestigious appearance. Now, among these uninvited as well tend to be those who are needy. Those who have physical ailments, who are, who are impoverished, who have relational challenges, who, who have a myriad of lists of difficulties in life that make them the outcasts on the fringe of society. And also the people that Jesus tended to care about. And then add to that the fact that it's the Sabbath. It's this holy day of rest that is full of regulations. All sorts of prohibitions on activities that, that you were not permitted to do. So really, it's only a matter of time. you got some witnesses who are watching Jesus. You've got Jesus with all sorts of people he cares about around on a day when you're not allowed to do much. It's just a matter of time until he steps out of line. 
according to their interpretations of things. And sure enough, wouldn't you know it, right in front of Jesus is this man with dropsy. Dropsy is this condition of causing excessive fluid to build up on some part of the body, perhaps the hands, the feet, the legs, and, and it makes it painful and difficult to move around, can cause a lot of problems with living. But here's the other thing about dropsy. It's actually not the condition itself. It's a symptom of an even more serious illness that exists within a person's body. Now, these Pharisees would see this man with dropsy, and they would assume that that was God's judgment upon him as well. So he wasn't just physically unclean and unwell. They would assume he was spiritually unclean as well. Two reasons to exclude him. And yet he is the one for whom Jesus takes initiative. And he speaks first. He looks at all these experts of the law and he says to them, is it permitted? Is it right or is it wrong? Which one is it, guys? Is it right or is it wrong for me to heal, to heal this man on the Sabbath? And they remain silent. Now their silence speaks volumes. Because you see, they remain silent, which means that it's difficult for them to protest Jesus healing him after the fact. And so that's what Jesus does. He, he takes the man by the hand, he, he heals him, and he sends him on his way. Now Jesus knows that following this healing, that these, these experts of the law believe he's broken the Sabbath law. Because he has worked on the Sabbath. And, and we're not talking about some footnote law here. This is one of the Ten Commandments. This, this is a significant commandment that they believe he has broken. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, it, it seems pretty clear. Deuteronomy chapter 5 says this, Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work on those six days, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath unto the Lord your God. On that day, on that seventh day, you should do no work. You shouldn't work. Your sons and your daughters shouldn't work. Your male and female servants shouldn't work. It goes on to say, even your ox, even your donkey should not work on that day. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now Jesus reveals his awareness of the, of the intricacies of this command in what he says next. And in how he confronts them and how he actually defends his actions of doing this. And he says to them in verse 5. If one of you Pharisees, if one of you who are sitting around this table with me, if you had a son or a daughter... If you had an ox or a donkey that fell into the well on the Sabbath, would you not pull them out? Would you, would you not do that which would be equated as work to pull them out? Would you? Or, or would you wait till the next day? Bobby, just hang on for a day. I'll be back tomorrow when it's not the Sabbath. And hey, don't struggle too much because struggling is work. So just, just sit in the hole, sit in the well. Or would you pull them out? See, this isn't the first time that Jesus challenged the Pharisees with this question about working on the Sabbath. Very briefly, if you go back to Mark chapter 3, when Jesus is in the synagogue teaching one day, a man with a shriveled hand appears, and Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says the same thing. Is it right to heal him or not? And he heals the man. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field, and they pick, they're hungry, and so they pick the heads off some grain, and they, and they rub them in their hands, and they eat the kernels. The Pharisees challenge them on this. As they finish the walk on that same chapter, they get to the temple again, to the synagogue again, and they come across another man that Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And in each of these cases, he asks them the same question. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? 
And in every single one of these situations, silence. The Pharisees don't give an answer. Including this time around this prominent Pharisee's dinner table. Silence to this question. And the reason there's silence is because the question Jesus asks them confronts the condition of their hard hearts. It confronts the condition of their hearts. So I share this as we open a talk about the parable because this is the event. This is the situation. This is the atmosphere into which Jesus now shares a parable about humility and about generosity. You see, as he arrived at the dinner earlier that day, he paid attention to where everybody sat. And he noticed that as the different guests came into the dinner, they were looking for a place of honor at which they could sit at. Now, just being invited was an honor. Just being invited was an indication that that you were an insider as opposed to everybody else who was maybe on the perimeter or outside the building was an outsider. But that wasn't enough anymore. Now it's a matter of who's going to sit the closest to the host. Because the closer you sit to the host, the higher honor, the higher personal honor that person has. See, the measurement was no longer who's in and who's out. The measurement now is is the who's who amongst the elite becomes the measurement now. And so with all attention clearly fixed upon Jesus following this healing, he tells them this parable. He says, "When when someone invites you to a wedding feast... Do not take the place of honor. Like, like don't come in and just sit down at the head table. For a person more distinguished than you may have also been invited. And if so, the host who invited both of you will then say to you, give this person your seat. And then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important seat, like at the kid's table. (laughs) But when you're invited... Take the lowest place so that when the host comes, he says, friend, what are you doing at the kid's table? Come up to a better place, and then you'll be honored in the presence of all the guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The conflict between pride and humility is drawn to the surface here. Now, we, as people who live in this time and culture, don't often jostle over seats at a, at a dinner we get invited to. But we all know, either within our own lives or people we've experienced in the world, what it looks like when an individual fixates upon their self-importance, upon them being recognized, upon them being noticed, making sure they get their share And when that's the mind frame, it has this this effect where it tends to to narrow our vision. So we become laser focused upon my desires, my needs, the hurt in my life that's unresolved. And it makes me wonder how many of these people who came into that party that day, who were eyeing and competing for these seats of honor, actually stepped over but never actually noticed the man with dropsy as they were jostling for seats around the table. Now, this parable is not just a lesson on humility in our relationship to others. That's present. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes in a little more detail. But in the background of this parable is the issue of our relationship with God and the nature in which we stand before him. 
See, a person might try to compare themselves to another individual and, and, and convince themselves of their superiority based upon the fact that, well, I have a specific title, I, I have a bigger paycheck, my, my social standing, my worldview, uh, my ability to hide my struggles are, are not as obvious and as apparent as other people's. And so we can take some of these characteristics and at times leverage them to exalt one person above another. Do you know what I'm talking about? When we leverage these things somehow, it takes it to another step, though, where we can allow these attributes these of worldly accomplishments and of worldly measurements, it allows us at times to go to make a mistake of leading us to a value-based judgment. This person's good, and this one's bad. And that's a mistake. Because that's not where inherent value finds its evidence. And the reality is this, is that before God, and in light of who he is, no one stands exalted. Before God, no one has a right to sit at his table. And we look at, chapter, uh, at verse 11, it gets fuller, fully explained for us when we see that God is the one who does the humbling of the exalted. And he is the one who does the exalting of the humbled. And it's based upon his assessment of things, not ours, and our comparison of us versus our neighbor. It says right there that those who exalt themselves, God will humble them. And those who humble themselves, God will exalt them. You see, God owes his blessing and his acceptance to no one. And yet, he makes his divine favor open to everyone. And so when Jesus says that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted, he's making a connection here to the affairs of our lives, the way that, that we view and conduct ourselves in relationship to other people. He's drawing a connection between that and our relationship to God and how God views us. And this isn't the first time we see this. We see this elsewhere in the Gospels where we see things like, forgive, you will be forgiven. I came to serve, not to be served. See, this principle of humbling ourselves and allowing God to sort it out, of humbling ourselves and allowing God to exalt and be the one who makes the assessment, is, is what's being presented for us. And Paul shows to us in, in Philippians chapter 2, one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture you'll find in all of the Bible, what this looks like when put into practice in the life of Jesus. When he says this, referring, remember, we're talking here about our relationship to one another having impact, having merit upon how God views us and whether God exalts or will humble us in our lives. And Paul tells us this, that in our relationships with one another, the way we interact and view one another, we need to have the same mindset as Jesus, who being the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing becoming the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and then here it is, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death upon a cross, and because he humbled himself, God therefore exalted him to have the highest place and to have the name that is above every name. See, once we personally come to understand that there is nothing inherently worthy within us that grants us a seat at God's table, that is a humbling experience. 
That is a humbling reality to come to, is that there is nothing inherently good in me that grants me access to God's table. That is a humbling experience. And that is tough for a lot of people to accept. It is tough for a lot of people to act upon because it's hard to not seek the place of honor. It's hard to voluntarily move down a seat. It's hard to let others get credit for things that we are involved in. It's hard to give without getting something back in return. But imagine with me for a moment, if you will. Imagine with me for a second how it would change our view. Imagine with me how it would change the way we interact with people in the world around us, where if instead of being solely focused upon where I sit at the table and who is seated at the table with me, I start to notice who is not at the table. I start to notice who is not there, and it starts to bother me. It bothers me to the point that I go, why are they not here? It bothers me to the point that I say, why are they not here, and what am I going to do about it so that they can be invited to be here around this table? So we start to ask those questions of ourselves. We start to live that out in the world around us. And suddenly the uninvited can become the invited. And this is the question that Jesus actually poses to the host of the party as he concludes this parable. Picking it up in verse 12. He says, when you give a luncheon and a dinner, don't invite your friends. Don't invite your brothers, your sisters, or your relatives, or, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they're going to invite you back to their place, and then it's even Stephen. You've been repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and then you will be blessed. Although these people cannot repay you, they haven't got a home. They haven't got a table to invite you to. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. To this call to humility, Jesus now adds the virtue of generosity. He's not saying it's wrong to have family dinners. He's not saying it's wrong for us to hold a potluck following service. And so we can't look at this verse and go, see, I'm not going to Aunt Sue's mystery meatloaf dinner. It's not what it's about. What he's saying is this, that if you host an event, and if you invite those who love you, if you invite those who are very similar to you, who are friends of yours, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But don't try and pass that off as being inherently morally commendable. Everybody does that. <laughs> There's nothing unique or, or surprising or abnormal about that. In fact, that's what's taking place around this table that Jesus is sitting at. We expect that to be the case. But rather, when humility and generosity are allowed to mingle, all of a sudden our vision widens. We cease to have that laser-focused vision upon us, and our vision starts to widen to the needs of others. And the first thing we might start to notice is who's not at the table. And then when we notice who's not at the table, an ache might start to build in our hearts. That says it bugs me that nobody that doesn't look like me is at the table. It bugs me that those people out there have not been invited to the table. And that ache begins to grow to this desire to say, I want to share a meal with them. 
I, I want to share my life with that person and, and hear about their story. That's why Jesus noticed the man with dropsy. It wasn't out of obligation. He didn't sit around the table and go, well, I'm the rabbi, guest of honor, kind of the highest ranking guy here. I guess I have to set a good example. That wasn't why he noticed him. He noticed this man with dropsy because it bothered him that he had unmet needs, that he was an oppressed person, that, that, that no one saw him, that no one cared about him, that because of this condition he had been excluded. It bothered him, and he moved towards it at the risk of himself, at the risk of his own standing before these leaders of the temple. Now, it's easy to understand when, when evil people ignore or reject or oppress the needy. History and present world news are full of examples of where that happens. But it doesn't just happen in those settings. It also happens amongst the religious at times, where somehow we allow the imputed righteousness, imputed meaning we didn't earn it, but it was given to us not because of our worth, but because of the worthiness of the person who gave it to us. This imputed righteousness that we didn't earn or deserve, and then we allow that to create an us versus them view of humanity, which leads to exclusion and neglect of one party. As though somehow God's grace, truth, and love makes us superior. See, the Pharisees were suffering from this condition. And the power of that sin in their lives had blinded them to God's heart for the people on the perimeter. Here's the litmus test for, for any church. Here's the litmus test for any person's life to know, is, is this a challenge? Is this a situation in my life I need to be questioning and asking? It's really to look at, at, at how we spend our time and our energy and our resources and, and beg the question, is it, is it exclusively or too heavily weighted to serving the insiders? versus inviting those on the outside or on the edge. And when we take, we take inventory of ourselves as individuals, as ministry leaders, as, as a church as a whole, we take inventory of this and find out what the balance looks like. And balance is the answer, because there's a bad ditch on both sides of that equation. You see, a person or, or a church that, that is all in on serving, that's exhausting, okay? Like, like, there is no feedback. There's, there, that's all about deposits being taken out of the person or the church without any deposits being made. There's always withdrawals with no deposits. But also on the other side, when, when we end up with everything looks like us and there, there's no look to the outside, it, it starts to look like exclusivism. See, the, the answer is in the balance between these things. And, and as a church, as, as church leaders, we want to encourage you we want to set an example for you on what it looks like to find that balance between those things. That's why when we start planning our fall ministry programs, and, and as Andrew spoke to a few moments ago, we, we have a need for volunteers, but we also have a need for people just to come and be amongst some of our groups, like our life groups, where people come together on a regular basis to authentically connect with one another, to grow spiritually. Our life groups are critical parts of the discipling that happens for the body here at West Meadows. We have our potlucks like next, next Sunday following the service where we welcome the opportunity to come together and to fellowship with one another. 
We have classes and programs where you can become educated throughout the year. We, we hold services such as this and other services throughout the year, all in an effort to, to invest in those that God has entrusted to us, that each person who walks through these doors is a soul that he has seen fit to entrust to our care. And so we want to make sure we are serving those people and seeing that as a shepherding responsibility of the highest priority. But at the same time, we also have these values, a, a value of countercultural love, where we want to share the never-changing love of Jesus Christ with an ever-changing world that speaks of going beyond the doors of the church. We, we also have this value of encountering Jesus, where we want to weave his story into ours so that people see him through us. So we also need to have these interactions outside, and, and we see that happening I know that in the upcoming ministry season, uh, Andrew's planning to have the youth go out and serve a meal at the mustard seed on a monthly basis. I know that there is opportunities for people to, in our prison ministry that we have here to go amongst those who are in a situation of, of, of lacking hope and understanding and, and not knowing what tomorrow holds for them, that we can go to them and share God's love with them there. I read a story this week of a family who became empty nesters, and they had all this room in their house. They didn't know what, quite what to do with it. And so they, they started a ministry to open it up to foster children who otherwise would have been aborted if they didn't have a home. Story of a, of a man who, who was educated and liked to share and teach, and so in his spare time, he goes to the inner city to tutor kids. Like there's all these sorts of opportunities and examples that exist in the world around us and, and the church around us that, that we get nothing back in return from these individuals that we serve. But we don't expect it. Because we have so generously received from God who gave us so much that this is an outpouring of what we received. We have a chance to serve and to share with others. And we may not receive any gratitude or any repayment back in this life because the people we serve don't necessarily have that. But we trust that God took notice. And when God takes notice, that one day we will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That although you are not repaid in this life, you will be repaid by God at the resurrection of the righteous. So here's my challenge for you. My challenge is this, and in the days of summer that remain, in, in the little bit of time we have left in August, which we trust and pray is going to be glorious and beautiful, as you plan and attend your barbecue, cook, and patio, sitting, lawn, cutting, dog, walking, festival, going, tube, floating, mosquito swatting days ahead, as you do that, look around your table. Look around your events, your barbecues, your fire pits, and ask yourself the question, who's not here? And why not? And does it bother me? And if it bothers me, what am I going to go do about it? Now, when Jesus finished speaking, there was kind of this quiet tension in the room like right now. So one of the people stood up and, and spoke in verse 15. And he said this, he said, well, when one of those at the table heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God, which was really his way of breaking the tension. 
It was really his way of, if we can paraphrase that, of saying, yeah, Jesus, you know, despite all of our differences, won't it be great when we just all sit around the table of God together? You know, wouldn't that be a great day? And that actually causes Jesus to launch into another parable that I encourage you to read at home, perhaps on your own time, even this afternoon, beginning in verse 15 and 16 there, where Jesus challenges some of the assumptions made in that statement. You see, it's a parable, very, very briefly, of a man who was planning a great banquet, and, and so he sent his servant out to invite a whole bunch of people to come to this banquet. And at first, people accepted the invitation, but when the time came to actually arrive a short time later, they came up with all these bogus excuses. Oh, you mean today? Oh, gosh, no, today is not good. I could never, oh, no, I couldn't possibly make it today. And so the host finds himself with a dilemma. Does he postpone or does he cancel this great banquet? Or does he go ahead and start to invite people far and wide, like, like all kinds of people, the kind of people that you wouldn't normally expect him to invite to come to this party, to come to this table. And so he sends his servant out again to invite people to come to the table with no exceptions. Invite the poor, invite the maimed, invite the blind, invite the lame, invite the people you wouldn't expect to be invited to a party such as this. Invite them to come in. This parable, again, has in mind God's relationship to humanity and his desire to invite all people to come, come to the table, to be part of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who wishes the invitation. He invites us to come to the table where we can find a divine welcome. but We can also find divine forgiveness. But don't overlook the result of refusing Jesus' invitation to come to the table. Because you see, no worldly claim, or no claim to worldly significance or achievement or efforts or accolades will grant us access to his table. No claim to proximity or awareness of a person of Jesus will suffice. Only a personal relationship with him grants us access. And so Jesus says, to come to the table, to embrace the offer of salvation that is made possible by the cross. And that is what we focus upon as we come to the table. Jesus is an invitation for all people to come to the table and experience the divine forgiveness, the divine welcome that is made possible by the cross. So the, the elements on the table are, are symbolic of that. That as we have the bread here, we, symbolic of Jesus' body, which was broken, which was freely offered and sacrificed. We have the cup, symbolic of his blood, which was shed. That through the giving of his blood, that through the giving of his life, we might receive. This is that imputed righteousness that as he gave, we receive, not because of worthiness, but because of incredible generosity. And so as we come to the table Remembering those elements, we need to come with humility, as we talked about today. Humility that says, I recognize I have sin in my life. Recognizing that, that I have needs that I cannot meet and resolve myself. I need something beyond me to overcome that problem. Which means we also need to come to the table with gratitude. Gratitude that because Jesus went to the cross to pay the price for our sins, 
we can be forgiven. We can be set free. We can have that problem, that sin issue in our lives resolved and cleaned up by him as he sets us free and gives us his forgiveness and enters us into eternal relationship with the Father. But as we come with humility and we come with gratitude, that means we also need to partake but then leave with an attitude of generosity. Because as so much was given for us and to us, that then gives us the opportunity to invite others to come to the table. And so I do invite all people to come to this table. If you've never made that profession of faith in Jesus Christ before, you've, you've never acknowledged perhaps with that humble spirit that I'm a sinner and I need something beyond me to resolve that issue, Jesus invites you to come to the table to receive the divine forgiveness, the divine invitation of, of, of the bread and the cup. It's not the elements that save us. The elements are symbolic of the power of forgiveness that comes through Jesus paying the price for us. But also for those of us who have made that profession of faith, this is an opportunity to reaffirm that in our lives, to surrender aspects of ourselves. We've said, you know, I've allowed this to well up. I've allowed this area of my life to become more important than Christ, or, or my focus is more upon myself and my needs or my pains in this area, and I need to surrender that to Christ. This is a chance to reaffirm that and to lay those things down and then to come to the table. Receive the elements and go forth forgiven, loved, and inviting others to come to the table as well. Give you a moment to reflect upon that, to prepare your hearts to receive these elements. And I'll ask David if he'll pray for the bread in a moment.